The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.deliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. My name is Noah Tolley, and I am one of the collaborators on the Liberating Arts Project. Today, we're joined by Greg Jones. Greg is the Ruth W. and A. Morris Williams Jr. Distinguished Professor of Theology and Christian Ministry and Dean at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. He previously served as Executive Vice President and Provost at Baylor University, and just last month, he was named the next president of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, we're here to discuss his book, Navigating the Future, Tradition Innovation for Wilder Seas, co-authored with Andrew Hogue and published just this year. But before we dive into the book, Greg, thank you so much for joining us during what must be a very busy season of transition. Um, what's it like to make a move in a year like this during a season with so much change? Well, thanks. It's a delight to be with you, Noah, and uh, uh, it's a great question. Um, I wasn't looking to be making a change. Uh, and uh, so when I was approached about uh, the possibility of uh, succeeding a really remarkable leader at Belmont, Bob Fisher, I was honored and began to think it through. The search process was a bit surreal because so much of it had to be by Zoom. And when we did do some in-person meeting with the uh, succession committee, it was uh, divided up. Uh, into small groups, socially distanced. And uh, so even the process of getting to know the, the university was a, a bit uh, unusual because of uh, COVID. But the multiple pandemics that, as I talk about it, that we're dealing with, which include COVID, but also the heightened attention to racial injustice, the economic disruption and loss of jobs that has been going on over the last year, and more recently, the mental health challenges, um, I think are really, uh, forcing us all to think about what needs to change uh, and what is going to change and how is the world going to be different. Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, doesn't even talk about moving to a new normal. She just talks about moving to a new abnormal. And uh, so, you know, it's been, a, it's been a tumultuous year, and yet we're really excited, my wife and I are, about the new opportunity at Belmont. And uh, so it's given us a jolt of new energy and hope, actually, to be uh, planning a a move, even as we've uh, had to adapt to all sorts of unusual protocols as part of that process. Hmm. So, you know, the book reads like you wrote it for this year, <laughs> to be honest. but it had to start before this year. Every book has a story behind the story. And I wonder if you can tell us what prompted you and Andrew to begin work on this project. What was it that brought the book to life? Yeah, it's a great question. So, the genesis of the idea around tradition to innovation goes back uh, more than 20 years ago, actually. Um, I was frustrated because I, it was a time when John Cotter at Harvard had published a book called Leading Change, and people all over the place were talking about leaning into change and leading change. And I thought, I kept thinking, well, there's a lot we ought to preserve. 
And so I was struggling with that. And then I had a conversation with Ron Heifetz, the, the leadership thinker at Harvard. And I said, uh, you know, tell me about your work on adaptive change. And he said, well, you know, one of the things that people miss in leadership without easy answers is that the term adaptive, I draw from evolutionary biology. And when you look at adaptive transformation and adaptive change, it's usually only about one to 3% of the DNA that changes. You need to pay attention to the 97 to 99% that you're actually trying to preserve. And I thought, aha, that's the key. And so I started playing around with images and Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian at Yale, uh, had written uh, in, in one of his books, uh, The Vindication of Tradition, that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And so I started playing around with the notion of traditioned innovation as a phrase. And it started to resonate. And then I asked my friend, Kevin Rowe, who's a New Testament scholar, what came to his mind when he heard traditioned innovation? And he said, uh, well, actually, the book of Acts. And I thought, this is a good sign since he's a scholar of Luke and Acts. And then he said, actually, the Gospels and Acts. And I thought, that's even better. And then as we started talking, he said, you know, it's actually a biblical way of thinking. And I thought, oh, that's even better. And we, you know, saw, thought only God creates out of nothing. The rest of us are always creating out of what's gone before us. And so the traditioning part is absolutely crucial. And so once that began to resonate as traditioned innovation as a biblical way of thinking, and it became more and more relevant in my own leadership at Duke Divinity School when I was dean uh, the first time from 1997 to 2010, and more and more I was seeing it in other institutions, uh, both domestically and globally. Um, I'd been working on ideas around the book, but I kept getting drawn into administrative uh, leadership, and uh, that always delayed the writing process. Uh, and then finally, when I was at Baylor, uh, Andrew Hoger, I call him Andy, Andy and I became friends, and uh, we started working on convening groups to talk about these ideas, and that's what ultimately led to the, to the development of the book as it's been published just a couple months ago. Hmm. Well, the administrative work may have slowed down the the writing of the book, but it certainly enriched it along the well, way, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's actually, I mean, that's true. It, it slowed down the writing, but it, I learned a lot as I, you know, had to actually uh, practice traditioned innovation in my leadership. And, you know, you asked about the transition. One of the really interesting dynamics that happened when Belmont approached me about considering the position, the chair of the board there is a longtime friend of mine, but he said, you know, your idea of traditioned innovation is exactly what we need in the next president of Belmont. And so, you know, whether that was a, uh, a pitch or a serious uh, perspective, it came up over and over again in the conversations. And I really believe that uh, as I exercise leadership, I learned more about the implications of traditioned innovation, but also saw it as more and more important as we try to figure out how to navigate the future. And then, you know, the book was already... Uh, basically in press when everything started developing. And I told him to slow down that I had to revise some things in the first couple of uh, chapters to, to specify and, and note the, the, the relevance of the issues that we were dealing with in 2020 and now 2021. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to dig into in the book. And, and we'll get to a lot of that. But before we, we dig into some of the details that unfold over the course of the chapters, some of the things that caught my attention at least. What is traditioned innovation? Well, I would say traditioned innovation is a habit of thinking uh, and living. 
that holds the past and the future in creative tension. It keeps drawing from the best of the past, what Pelican talks about, the living faith of those who've gone before us in ways that enable us to lean into the future uh, that God has in store for us in really life-giving ways. And the better we're doing that simultaneously and holding those things together, the more fruitful our organizations, our leadership, and our lives will be. Hmm. So a lot of a lot of institutions they they lean on their mission statements, their vision statements, their values to do this work. But one of the things that caught my attention uh, in your book was the chapter on purpose, and and this chapter on purpose, which comes early on. Uh, part of your argument seems to be that organizations can tend to get caught up in their how and lose track of their why. Um, and on the one hand, anyone with a history of working in organizations knows this. They felt it probably at times. Um, this is the, uh, well, we've never done things like that response that we all know at least to joke about, if not to lament. Um, on the other hand, there are these mission statements, vision statements, core values, things that are in the background that we refer to as our sort of enduring identity. And you would think those provide us with the why. But in your chapter, you point out that they don't do all the work, that, that there's a sense of purpose that we haven't always drawn out. We haven't always kept in front of us as we're making decisions. Why is the why so often missing? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Um, I remember hearing a story about uh, a uh, executive business uh, conference where they were bringing people from a number of different companies together, and they uh, they asked everybody to send in their company's mission statement uh, in advance. And when they first gathered, there were about fifty people there from fifty different organizations, and they said, "We're going to start reading mission statements. When you hear your mission statement, raise your hand." And they read the first mission statement and about two thirds of the hands went up. And that's to say that, you know, what we've succeeded in doing too often is making the mission, vision, value statements so generic that they fit just about anybody and they don't actually address the why question. So I think there's a, there's a specific organization little question that we have to address. I want to take a step back though, because I think it's a broader cultural problem that we have in modernity. And, and I draw from Charles Taylor's work in a secular age, where he said, you know, at the beginning of modernity, uh, everybody assumed there was a God, so that there really weren't any atheists. If you didn't really think God was at work in the world, you tended to be a deist. So he said, even the non-believers assumed there was a God. The only question was, how is God, if at all, involved in the world? But he says, at the end of modernity, uh, basically everybody acts as if there is no God. Even the believers uh, don't live and act and think as if God is active in the world. And it's that kind of default assumption, what my colleagues Will Willeman and Stanley Hauerwas uh, uh, more than 30 years ago called practical atheism, that I think affects our ability to address that why question. That, you know, the why question for Christians especially is about, is there a, is there a coherent telos? Is there something toward which the world and our lives are moving and toward which we're oriented? It's that kind of sense of, of the eschatology of bearing witness to God's reign. And if you have that in view, then that ought to sharpen your mission statement because you're much clearer about the why statement. I think many Christian organizations, especially in the United States, um, have just devolved into a kind of 
defining ourselves over against what we're not or aspiring to secular standards, uh, whether those are accreditors of one sort or another, or in, in education, it's Harvard, or in business, it's Apple or Google. We don't actually know as clearly as we ought what we're for. Mm. The why question really raises that in a sharp way. And if we believe in God, then we ought to have the best answers to those why questions for our own vocation and for our organizations. And they ought to be sharply uh, distinctive in terms of those mission and values and, and vision statements. So that's a, that's a big vision. Um, there's, there's going to be some big vision there attached to, in, in the book at least, human flourishing, some vision of what it means yeah. to be human. And what struck me about um, the way the book engaged that question, or one of the things that struck me about the way the book engaged that question is this matter of gospel ambition. Um, you point to, to James and Philippians, uh, a passage that most of us know well, about not having selfish ambition. And you point out this, this point about selfish ambition is not about not having ambition. Right. It's about not having a certain sort of ambition. And you, you replace it with a gospel ambition. And I wonder if you can talk about how that gospel ambition um, helps give some color to this big why that you're yeah. drawing into. Yeah, uh, thanks. I, I think that it's, it's really about bearing witness to God. And, you know, if you think about the, that close of uh, Ephesians 3, where you have this prayer that we're asked to comprehend the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of Christ with all the saints. Mm. It's an extraordinary vision. And then the last two verses are, now to the one who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. Mm. I mean, it's astonishing to think about what that entails. I mean, I'd settle if the phrase was just accomplish all we could ask or imagine. But it's actually more than all we could ask or imagine, a, far more than all we could ask or imagine, abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. And so it's being set on fire with that kind of imagination for what God intends for the creation and for, for our lives. And here I go back to, you know, some of the work Kevin Rowe's been doing on Acts and the early church. He's just written a little book called Christianity Surprise. His presenting question is, how did Christianity go from 5,000 followers of Jesus in the year 50 to 5 million followers two centuries later, long before Constantine? So this isn't about, you know, just the, the formal adoption of Christianity in the Roman Empire. That growth from 5,000 to 5 million in two centuries, uh, he says, has a lot to do with the power of Easter, that when God raises Jesus from the dead, it sets the early Christians in motion, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that they're just going to have this unbelievable gospel ambition, and so they start new orphanages, they start new schools, they start the first hospitals in the history of the world, to the point where I love it that Julian the Apostate, the Roman emperor, eventually says, these nasty Galileans, by which he means followers of Jesus, he says, these nasty Galileans are making us look bad. We need to try to do stuff like they're doing. But the trouble is the Romans couldn't make it work because they were just looking at an imitative technique, whereas the Christians were doing it out of a gospel ambition. And so, you know, I think that in the wake of everything, especially in 2020, around COVID and race and economics and mental health, we ought to be seeing this as our time to be leaning into gospel ambition and to really bear witness to that 
in a way that's that's shaped by what I'm calling Easter hope and Pentecostal power. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Christianity Surprise. Um, I actually assigned that book in uh, class this year, and I think the students were surprised. I mean, <laughs> it, it was an urban studies capstone class, but I was uh -huh. trying to get them to think about the ways in which we don't just stand as individuals, but we stand as parts of institutions. Yep. And that those institutions, as Kevin Rowe points out, make certain people visible. And I thought that was a great question for the students to wrestle with. And in fact, they're making their presentations for me later today. Uh, oh, wonderful. That book. And I may ask you later in this conversation, who is it that our higher ed institution should make visible? So just as a heads up, that may be coming down the road. Great. Um, so I, I think about institutions getting trapped in traditionalism. And then I think, okay, so we could swing that pendulum all the, all the way the other direction. We could swing that pendulum all the way to a sort of untethered uh, ambition and untethered eye to the future and possibility. Um, you, you describe that in the book as futurism. And I wonder if you can tell us what are the, the different sorts of problems you get in an institution when you lean too hard in the direction of traditionalism, but also too hard in the direction of futurism. Yeah. Well, the, the danger is that uh, either you end up with nostalgia or fantasy. Mm. Uh, that nostalgia is actually for a time that never was and traditionalism ends up uh, creating fictional pasts. Um, and, you know, my, uh, my, my grandfather, maternal grandfather, who was a German Methodist pastor um, said that there's nothing that accounts for the longing for the good old days quite so much as a bad memory. And I, I remember that, uh, you know, a lot that the, the traditionalism tends to reify a past as it was imagined to be rarely as it actually was. And so you get stuck in, uh, we've always done it this way. And in fact, though, uh, that usually means that it's been around for 15 or 20 years and people just forgot what preceded. You know, I'll never forget uh, when in my early days of serving as a university leader, when the president just said, you know, tenure didn't really exist in universities prior to the 1950s. What would happen if it didn't, if, if tenure went away? And everybody in the room, all the deans just kind of froze. And we assumed, you know, tenure has been around since the Adam and Eve, you know, and when, then we realized, oh, there actually was a time when universities didn't have tenure. What, what does that look like? And we realized how short our time frame was and how stifled our imagination. The other danger though is, and it's often because we know so much traditionalism and we realize just how stuck institutions are that we wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, let's make stuff up. And you see that all over the case now in business, in higher ed, in churches, where they just wanna make stuff up. Well, that's not, fruitful either, because that's fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it often leaves a lot of what's most important behind. You know, that's the point about evolutionary biology that you, you have to pay attention to what you're trying to preserve. Mm -hmm. Whereas I sometimes draw the analogy, you know, the kind of futurism or just making stuff up is like a middle school band concert. Nobody wants to go to that, even the parents. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you really want is a jazz combo that draws on the past listens to people in the present to make really creative, beautiful music in the future. My experience of many organizations, whether it's local churches, higher ed institutions, businesses, government, is 
we get caught in the either or of everything in the past has to remain the same, or we need to throw everything out and we have to do everything new. And neither of those options is fruitful. And so we're stuck with the kind of weakness of institutions that people like your students are wrestling with where they're cynical because institutions have failed us across the board. And we're now in what Yuval Levine calls a time to build because we really need healthy institutions. And that's gonna only happen if we can avoid nostalgia or fantasy and actually hold the past and the future together to enable creative leadership in the present. Mm. Yeah, I love the jazz combo uh, analogy, by the way. I, I had actually uh, recently written to somebody that I thought, when, when I read this, that I thought that uh, liberal arts colleges actually should be able to innovate. Uh, they should be a bit like John Coltrane to uh, Rogers and Hammerstein in the way that, that he took my favorite things. Oh and yeah. Something new, but recognizably the same out of it at the same time. Yeah, it's a great YouTube video to watch because you're getting all familiar with these are a few of my favorite things. And then it takes you on a riff and you're going, whoa, wait, where are, where are? And then he brings you back and then he takes right. you away and brings you back. Right. You never forget what it is. And he never no. forgot what it was, but he made it his own. And I think yeah. that's a great analogy that you use at the end of the book. I think that readers might be surprised at the role that character and community play in the book. And I wonder if you can talk to us about the roles you see them playing and why they're indispensable. Yeah, well, um, let me start with community because, you know, I think that's uh, central to the story of scripture and uh, uh, we're made for relationship. Whether you think about it in the African term of Ubuntu or Augustine saying, you know, our hearts are restless till they rest in you, oh God. Um, and we're created for relationship and for community. Um, you know, I say that uh, with the fall, Adam and Eve go from we and ours and us to me and mine and no. And so our fallen world, which we often assume is the natural world, is actually where we act like two-year-olds, where we're always saying what's in it for me and mine and no. Um, and what God is continually saying from creation to new creation is it's about we and our and yes, you know. Mm -hmm. In, in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul says that Jesus Christ is God's definitive yes. And that sense of community, and you think about the diversity of gifts in 1 Corinthians, is that we come to full life. We come to flourish when others flourish. I love the image of, uh, of Dorotheus of Gaza, uh, one of the early church uh, writers, who says God's at the center, and then the, all humanity is at the circumference. And we can only move closer to God if we move closer to each other. And we can only move closer to each other if we move closer to God. Mm. And so it's that sense of community that I think is so important. You know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and uh, Robert Putnam in, in books, both of whom published in uh, uh, 2020, talked about doing a Google Ngram and noting over the last half century, the decline of the use of the word we and a rise in the use of the word I, which I think is a sign of the, the problems we are finding ourselves in across American culture, is we've lost that sense of community and the richness of institutions that make community possible in, in those sorts of ways. On character, institutions, when they're healthy, 
uh, as Yuval Levine points out in his book, A Time to Build, are molds for character. Hmm. He says that we've tended to treat them as platforms for celebrity. And so we've become cynical about them because they're just being misused and, and damaged and uh, they damage us. But what we really need for faithful leadership and for healthy community are the virtues of character. And we know that from scripture, we know it from the great traditions of uh, philosophy and theology, and yet somehow in modernity, we lost sight of that. I have a good friend who's an amazing social innovator, and he does, he's got remarkable projects all around the world. He's a Malaysian-born uh, person who's now, uh, who became a Christian. And I said, how do you identify the entrepreneurs and the people you really think uh, practice the most innovative leadership? He said, I look at their character. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I start with humility. And then I look for perseverance and truthfulness and courage and generosity and love. And I said, that's pretty remarkable. He said, well, if you're missing any of those things, you'll be in it for the wrong reasons. Hmm. And so here's a guy who you think of as a really savvy business leader. And yet at the heart of it was an emphasis on the virtues of character. Hmm. So this book, the character, community, purpose, all of these things apply to a wide range of institutions. There's certainly an incredible number of types of institutions that would be in view as you're writing this. But let's take this in the direction of higher education. Sure. Um, what have you noticed about specific challenges that higher education faces along these lines? <laughs> what tendencies get in, in our way sometimes? And how can tradition innovation help us out in higher ed? Yeah, it's a very large question. Uh, so um, I would say that uh, higher education tends to be forgetful of its own past as an institution. And so you tend to have either a kind of hagiographical story from humble beginnings to the present, or you have a Jeremiah uh, from glorious beginnings to the dreadful present. And that's how a lot of histories of higher education are paying are paid attention to. We don't really spend enough time thinking of uh, any of our institutions, you know, whether Duke or Wheaton or any other institution, as having complex histories that need to be, that have sinful components that need to be repented of and have glorious traditions that need to be built on. Mm -hmm. And it's that, uh, that which I think really impedes our ability to deal with the challenges of the present and to live faithfully into the future. Too many institutions are really stuck in a kind of make it up as you go along. And there's a panic mode born out of survival that COVID has intensified as financial challenges have, have hit, where now people are just scrambling. And you see historically church-related colleges cutting out the humanities and even their religion and philosophy departments or their majors. And you just think, do you know what has created your identity and given you a distinction from a state university? And there's a kind of forgetfulness of their past and how that could continue to create new opportunities for the future. Um, and there's a danger in, in always just looking to the future in a way that becomes uh, nostalgic, uh, or I mean, futurist with at, with at best a sense of nostalgia, mm. but really distorting everything about the past. Um, I remember Marilyn Robinson writing a beautiful essay uh, about many liberal arts colleges across the Midwest that had origins in the abolitionist movement. And most of those institutions have no recollection of that. And so 
we tend to then get stuck in a traditionalism where the, the board of trustees and the president's just kind of clinging on to something or a futurism that forgets some of the powerful origins of their past. And you think, well, what can we do going forward? A number of years ago, I was asked uh, to, give the commencement, uh, to give a keynote address at Valparaiso's 150th celebration, their sesquicentennial. And I said, yes. And then you know, we're, it turns out it was in 2009, right after the economic meltdown. And so I thought, well, geez, this is an odd time to give a keynote celebration, you know, when institutions are struggling. But then I realized, sesquicentennial 2009, that means that it was founded in 1859. Mm -hmm. So I did research. Well, it was uh, immigrants moving into that area of up Northwest Indiana, who started a college then, uh, they were Methodists uh, at the time. It became Lutheran later. Um, but I thought, who would have started a, a college in their right mind in 1859? The economy's in a shambles. The country's on the brink of the Civil War. Oh, it was people who had a good sense of that purpose question. Hmm. And they knew that immigrants would need educational opportunities to be able to flourish in life. And so it seemed obvious to start an institution. You know, when we've had a clear sense of our purpose, we've known what we were drawn for. Too much of higher education, and unfortunately, even church-related or Christian higher education has lost that sense of what we're for and has been more in a kind of batten down the hatches and just say, well, we're not going to be secular, or we're not going to be this, or we're not going to be that. Um, even a place like Duke spends too much time comparing ourselves to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Yale, and Princeton. We call them the shimp schools for the first word, first letter of each of those names. And it's kind of sometimes like being a, at a middle school dance and you look around and you go, well, I'm not as athletic as them. I'm not as smart as them. I'm not as religious as them. I'm not as, rather than saying, what are we for? Mm -hmm. And who are we? Mm -hmm. I think in higher education, we're in some real turbulent times about economic models, about students, about demographics, about what it means to cultivate wisdom. You know, we, we developed some bad habits about uh, knowledge transfer. And now when you have Google and students can look stuff up in real time, that's not, the, that's not what education is. It's also not what it ever should have been. Mm -hmm. That really what education is about is the three great transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. And that's about cultivating virtues. And it's also about developing wisdom in our students. And if higher education can discover that, it includes skills. I'm all for you know, equipping people with the skills they need to, to go forward. But if they have skills without wisdom, that's pretty dangerous. Teddy Roosevelt was uh, known to have said, a leader without character is a menace to society. Mm. And we need that kind of clear sense of purpose, emphasizing community and character that'll orient us toward truth, goodness, and beauty. If you think about it, most of higher education isn't very good at talking about any of those three words, but we're especially not good at talking about beauty. And yet it's so important to cultivating a good life and a good society. Hmm. So in your answer, you, you touched on a lot of the things that get in our way or ways we get in our own way um, when it comes to tradition innovation. And you also pointed to a few of the resources we have at hand. You, you gave the, the Valparaiso example, for, for example. You, you turned to their history as you thought about how you might give that talk. Um, you point out that we're drawing on, again, this 97% of our DNA that we want to keep the same, even as 
the one to 3% is changing. What are some of the other resources, particular resources of higher ed that we can look to that maybe we've hidden? Maybe we're not as familiar with muscles we haven't exercised as we do this work. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, American higher education in America um, became the envy of the world. Um, and part of that is that we had deep traditions that were mostly formed by people of faith. Hmm. Um, you know, that most of the uh, great universities were founded by Christians. Uh, and they often were founded for the training of preachers. And we need to recover not exactly the same form because tradition to innovation isn't trying to replicate the past. Uh, that would create traditionalism. Uh, but rather, it's about adapting from the past for the sake of the future. And if you look at the kind of work, uh, I was struck when reading uh, uh, David McCullough's book, uh, The Pioneers, to the settling of the Ohio uh, area. And Peters was a pastor who also was a surveyor and an engineer. And mm. I thought, wow, you know, and, and at Harvard. Well, there was a sense back in those days that you would have this rich education aiming at truth, goodness, and beauty that was focused on developing character. And then people could be leaders in a variety of ways. You know, what we now call T-shaped leaders, uh, you know, that, are, that have both depth and breadth um, is really crucial. Well, that's what Christian higher education has been at our best. It's what, you know, the school of Alexandria uh, that Origen uh, was influential in in the second and third century kind of time emphasized was that training in virtue and that cultivation of wisdom. That's a resource we have to draw on. But when we, and, and this is where liberal arts colleges have it, they're small enough that they ought to be doing things across disciplines and departments. Uh, so we have the resources if our, if our histories go back far enough. You know, sometimes now we treat like a discipline of psychology as if it's been around forever. Well, actually it's really a 20th century phenomenon. And you, know, you think the same thing about the master of divinity degree in a theology school. That's really a relatively recent degree. God's raised up leaders for the church and pastors in very different ways over the course of 2000 years. Same thing with business degrees or business schools or law schools. We, we have resources to be way more creative in cultivating that and, you know, most of the great, whether you're thinking about uh, urban uh, planning and urban situations or health issues, they're not confined to any one discipline, department, or school. They're mm -hmm. all, you know, what we would call in the social sciences, wicked problems require people to come across disciplines to work together. Well, mm -hmm. Christians ought to be at the forefront of that. We have that in our heritage and our history we, why, are, why do we find it so hard to mobilize, except that we've settled for the conventions that have been established by research models like Johns Hopkins or Harvard. And it astonishes me to find a state university system where every one of the state university branches thinks it still should have Harvard as its model, rather than thinking about what it could do distinctively to prepare its students for leadership in the neighborhoods and the, the region where it's located so much more intellectual strength to them than we tend to. And we've, we've somehow short-sighted our memory of how people learn and how people grow. So I think there are a lot more resources on which to draw. The other problem higher education faces, which is a kind of traditionalism, 
is getting reified in bureaucracy. Mm. If you don't have a clear sense about your purpose, you'll substitute proceduralism for your purpose. Very interesting. So I want to revisit that, that question that I, I gave you a heads up about earlier. Yeah. Uh, unconnected to Kevin Rowe's book, Christianity Surprise, where in, in his section on institutions, uh, he points out that these institutions, orphanages, hospitals, schools, made visible in their time populations that were otherwise invisible. Yeah. Is, is there something that, that our colleges and universities should be making visible that's otherwise invisible? It's a great question. And uh, the, the short answer is absolutely. Um, and we ought, to be, we ought to be telling the stories of communities and lives uh, that, are, that are transformational and that give that sense of Easter hope and Pentecostal power. Uh, remember when uh, the Duke's president a number of years ago, Dick Brunson, that he wanted to give honorary doctorates, not just to the, to the people who were celebrities famous. He wanted to do it to people who would inspire our graduating students to see and say, I'd like a, to live a life like that. And I took him at his word. And so I nominated a woman who's one of my heroines, a woman named Maggie Barankitsa that we talk about a little bit in the book. I said, um, and she's an unknown woman in Burundi. Mm. Uh, and so I just thought, well, it's a, it's a flyer, but you know, he suggested they didn't have to be famous or well-known. In the meantime, she happened to win uh, a uh, international award for her work in social innovation. But I wrote a, a long letter explaining how she'd inspired people coming out of a a uh, the Burundian civil war where she'd been made watch as 70 members of her family and friends were killed and we're not going to let them in and she built this place called Maison Shalom and has educated thousands of children and now employed was employing about 450 of them started microfinance education uh health doing all sorts of amazing things well lo and behold Duke decided to give her an honorary doctor and I was privileged to be her faculty sponsor. When she came to give her, uh, to, to receive her doctorate, it just so happened that that week was the same week that, uh, I mean, the same year that Melinda Gates was giving the commencement speech. And after Melinda met Maggie, she came over, I need to learn from you. Hmm. Now here's one of the most famous women in the world mm -hmm. engaging somebody like Maggie. And I thought, we ought to be doing that way more in higher education. You know, Christian institutions ought to be doing that on a regular basis, lifting up those stories of communities and people. We ought to be at the forefront. You know, when we think about the effects of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and racial injustice, Christians ought to be at the forefront of dealing with those issues and showing uh, how we can model that kind of life and that kind of visibility. Uh, we ought to be telling the story of the village of Le Chambon during the Nazi era. You know, the way Philip Halley tells it, it's, a, it's an inspiring story, in lest innocent blood be shed, but he completely misses the underlying Christian convictions of that community. And that the Huguenots, you know, regularly uh, had this kind of witness. And the village of Le Chambon, under uh, Pastor Truckman and his wife, would have an annual pilgrimage to the martyrs' graves. Those are the kinds of stories we ought to be students when Greg Boyle, the, the, the Jesuit priest who started Homeboy Industries out in LA, came to Duke and spent a week, I got to interview him in a number of settings for students and other folks. 
if I had a dollar for every student who came up to me that week and said, oh, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up. Hmm. You know, they were inspired. They saw lives being lived that they thought was, that were impressive. We could do that in any discipline in the sciences. Think of Francis Collins and the work that he's done. His Templeton Prize uh, speech is one of the most inspiring speeches you could imagine, uh, given in the darkness of 2020. And yet there you see that kind of Easter hope shining through uh, a scientist in that sort of way. Higher education ought to be telling those stories, lifting up that vision. And I think we'd find ourselves not so much worried about demographic issues of how many 18-year-olds we'd be finding parents a lot more eager to send them to our schools if they saw what we're for and how we're lifting up that capacity to address the real issues that need to be addressed in the present and future. Mm. Amen. Um, so I have one closing question for you, and it has to do with, with institutional leaders and leadership. Uh, we, we have a mutual friend who has talked with me about the cultivation of green shoots, things that are coming up new. and Yeah seeing them and then cultivating them as they're coming up, giving them space to grow. And that obviously that metaphor includes having a soil that you've preserved in which they grow, right? So there is something something old, but there's also something new. Yeah. And I wonder, what does it take to be the kind of person hmm. that an institution needs to see and then cultivate its green shoots, preserve its soil that has taken so long to become fertile in some cases, and at the same time, see new possibilities? Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the great question of the moment. I love that image of the green shoots. My, my sister is a wildlife biologist who fights forest fires. And I remember when she took me out after the devastation at Yellowstone a number of years ago, and she showed me the green shoots that were, that were coming up. And uh, I thought, oh, th uh, that's a, just a beautiful image and, and the soil has to be fertile um, in that way. And I think that, that this is the great question of the moment. Um, it does take imagination. And that's part of why, you know, focusing on the purpose and having that sense of the reign of God um, and that sense of Easter hope and Pentecostal power. If you really, you know, if you think about the stories in Acts and what uh, happens in, in the first two centuries of Christianity, surprise, it's imagination. You know, I've talked to church leaders, you know, in a variety of settings about that image of what would make Christianity surprising. And too often I hear a kind of, oh, nothing, mm. you know, and I'm thinking, you don't think the Holy Spirit's at work? You don't have any imagination for the future? So, you know, you've got you've to have that sense of creativity and imagination. And part of that's also born by learning stories of the past. Uh, you know, my own Wesleyan tradition you know, you could get really into a funk about how bureaucratic and divisive and polarized we've become uh, in terms of a denomination in the U.S. And then you read the stories about how influential John Wesley was on William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, or as I discovered more recently about how influential he was on the Guinness family and their corporate philosophy of engaging and supporting people in Dublin, including the poor and helping provide education. And you begin to get inspired and say, oh, how do we create more people and more connections like that? Mm -hmm. I think that the first thing I'd say in response to the great question is, you got to have the imagination and believe that there are green shoots. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, you've got to be playing the long game. That's the sense of generativity. Um, I remember asking somebody about, you know, that phrase that uh, 
that you want to plant seeds under whose trees, plant trees under whose shade you will not sit. And I kept thinking, what's a one word phrase, a one word or a, a two word phrase that would summarize that? And everybody keeps saying, uh, I'm sure there is one. I've asked in multiple languages and they don't come up with it. But then finally, a, uh, a, an advertising executive in London said, well, I don't know the word or the phrase, but I can tell you a story. And he said at Christ Church, Oxford, when they were building the common room uh, a couple hundred years ago, they put in these gorgeous wooden beams across the common room. And they're just gorgeous in that space. And they realized that they probably would only last 200 to 250 years before they'd need to be replaced. So they planted a grove of trees behind uh, Christ Church that would grow over 200 years and be ready to replace those beams. And I thought, Gosh, I've thought of long-range thinking, but I've never thought about 200 years into the future. And I think if you don't focus just on the present, but you think about those green shoots and you take that sense of generativity mm -hmm. and how do I be the kind of person of hope and a person who will be faithful in the present, but with a view toward the long-term. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget when I was talking to a, a leader of a CEO of a large healthcare organization in the summer of 2009, I was talking to him and I said, what are you reading these days? I like to ask people what they're reading to get tips. And he said, um, oh, I'm reading a book about how the British broke the German spy code in World War II. Well, this was the summer when Obamacare was being debated in the Senate, in Congress. And I said, you're not reading about healthcare legislation? He said, oh, I get briefings on that. I thought you asked what I was reading. And I said, oh, well, why are you reading that? And he said, well, because when the British broke that spy code, it actually changed the whole strategy of the war. Mm. And I try to focus my attention on those long-term questions. You wanna be paying attention to the green shoots and then figuring out where are those green shoots gonna be five years from now? And how do we cultivate? How do we nurture that? How do we build the new relationships, the, the new networks? You know, early Christianity, when Paul first starts following uh, Jesus, uh, you know, all you had were green shoots and they were pretty unstable green shoots. You know, uh, what he says in first Corinthians is basically now that y'all are followers of Jesus, could you try to behave at least as decently as your pagan neighbors? You know, Galatia is not exactly a, a place where they're singing Kumbaya, mm -hmm. but he knows how to cultivate those green shoots. And out of those green shoots, two centuries later, you see the transformation of the world. And I think that's the kind of leadership that we need are people who have that imagination, who are always learning from the past, listening to those around them, and to go back to that jazz combo, making beautiful music together. Well, what a wonderful way to end. I'm glad you revisited the jazz combo metaphor because it was one of my favorite points in the book. Well, thanks. Thank you, Greg, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot from the book and even more from talking with you, and I know our listeners will too. Well, thanks. It was great to be with you and appreciate the time.